people. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries in the wilderness, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with the young. Our series this year, as I've said, is God's Story of Freedom. I don't mention the title of the series as much, but the argument I've been trying to make through every single sermon is that the entire Bible is essentially the story of how the human race walked away from God um, and how God intervenes, He rescues. He sends his son to intervene. It's, it, and, and how he makes us free in him. That's the story of this. So there's four major periods in the Bible. Fall or creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Uh, fall or the, the creation is when God created the world, the first two chapters of Genesis. And then chapter three talks about how Adam and Eve sinned and they turned against God and plunged the entire human race into uh, sin and judgment and curse and all these things. And <clears throat> essentially, the rest of the Old Testament is a working out of that rebellion. It's showing how people rebelled over and over and over and over again. It's a spinning out of those implications. But here's the interesting thing. Even though the redemption piece doesn't officially come until the New Testament, um, throughout the Old Testament, in spite of the evil of many nations around Israel and the evil of Israel itself, there are all kinds of glimpses of ultimate redemption. And we see it in Genesis 15 where he says that the seed of the woman will crush the heel, or the heel of the woman will crush the, sea, the head of the serpent. I'll get it right. It will crush the head of the serpent. 
We see it in the sacrificial system that he inaugurates to give forgiveness of sins. We see it in prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of how it points to Jesus. It's constant glimpses. In spite of rebellion, there's this way provided, these constant glimpses of the coming of redemption. And that's what we have here in Isaiah chapter 40. It comes after a whole lot of judgment. Essentially, the first 39 chapters are about judgment. Yeah, there are pieces there of light and how God has mercy, but there are small pieces. Most of the first 39 chapters are judgment against Assyria, against Babylon, against Israel, against everybody because of their rebellion. But this chapter is the story of one who would come and, and so I want us to look at three things from these 11 verses. Really, the first 11 verses are the prologue. Well, the first, the second verse is the prologue of the first 11 verses, and the first 11 verses are the prologue of the rest of the book. So, but we're not gonna get into a lot of that. But I want us to look at these three things from the passage. Number one, the one who is coming Number two, what he comes to do. And number three, what this means for us. So the one who is coming, what he comes to do, and what this means for us. So first, the one who is coming, verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Then we have three that statements. The first that statement is that her warfare is ended that her warfare is ended. Now, if, I, if you're looking at the NIV, I'm doing the ESV, and I didn't look at the NIV to see what exactly, but I think there are three that statements there as well, that her warfare has ended. So the only way that they could have comfort was to have victory. And to have warfare ended implies a victory. And to have a victory, you have to have a victor, <laughs> So anyone in ancient times would have looked at this and would understand that this was referring to a victorious king that would come. Um, who was that king? Well, it says it in verse 3, the Lord God himself, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It doesn't tell us who the voice is here. But that's not the important part. The important part is what he is saying. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is the king that is coming. So the language here is in keeping with ancient literature. There's an inscription in ancient Babylonian literature about their god, Nabu. And it says this, make Nabu's way good. Renew his road. Make straight his path. And what it is, it's referring to these special, the creation of special processional routes along which the images of the gods were carried on festivals. When there was a new king crowned, they would make these routes so that people could come. They would build new highways. That's kind of what it's, that's, that's what it's referring to here. So what are the implications of this? Well, one of the implications is the, that the king comes with might. 
He's a powerful king that has brought an end to the warfare and been victorious. It says that, that, that in verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. But there's another implication. It's that this king comes to bring goodness. He comes to give victory. He comes to alleviate suffering. He comes to alleviate slavery or oppression. He's a good king and he makes things straight. But here's the one it talks about in the wilderness. The wilderness. So the word wilderness is used many times in the Bible to talk about this world and what we've made out of this world. The implication is that we're living in the wilderness, in the wild, wild west. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Everyone believes whatever they want to believe. And as a result, we're living in the desert. So there are numerous places where it does this. As Psalm 84 calls it the Valley of Baca that we're traveling through now. It says we're traveling through a wilderness. So think of it this way. If you see a fish out on dry land, he's gonna be flopping around. He's not gonna last long. He's gonna die very soon unless you pick him up and put him back in the water. Why? He wasn't created for dry land. The fish is not created for dry, they don't thrive there. But as soon as you put them in the water, they're strong, they can go anywhere they want. They have complete freedom in the water. So the image that the Bible brings is that the human race has run far from God like a fish on dry land. Like the human race is outside of the water and can't breathe and is flopping around. Things are not going well. We have managed our world poorly. But the image here is of a good king that is coming to throw the fish back into the water so that we can be who we were created to be. And what were we created to be? Well, this come, this, this is the way the king does this. He comes with glory. Look at verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Famous, it's uh, in the Hallelujah Chorus, is it not? Uh, very famous, very famous uh, bit of uh, text there. And um, here's the thing. We were made for glory. We were made for glory. There's almost as if this spell has been placed on the earth and it has become a wilderness. It's like Narnia, that it became a winter place. And winter's wonderful for a moment, but then it lasted year after year after year after year after year. There was no thaw, there was no greenery, there was no anything. This is kind of what it is. The earth has been placed, we're in a wilderness where people are running after themselves, doing whatever they want. Um, Peter Gay is an academic, he was an academic, he's gone now, but he was an academic that taught at Yale and Columbia. And he wrote a book entitled Modernism, the Lore of Heresy, uh, in which he defines what modernism is. And just in the, in the very first couple of pages of the book, um, he, he states that essentially modern culture is based on the idea that all conventions, all traditions, and all authority don't matter. 
What is really important is that you look to yourself for truth and meaning. See, this is the wild, wild west. You find whatever you think is comfortable for you, you get whatever is good for you, and you follow that. Somehow, though, deep, deep down, I think we all suspect it's not working. I think even secular people would admit it's not working if you ask the average person on the street how they think things are going in the world or in our country. I think they're going to talk about how broken it really is. They may have different reasons for why it's broken, but nobody thinks that everything's going hunky-dory. Well, it's true. We've not managed our world well. There's more conflict than ever, and we're slowly destroying our planet, probably with plastic. I always think about that when I, when I get some plastic out because I always think of the... the um, the island in the Pacific that's bigger than, I don't know which state it is, but it's full of plastic and stuff, just junk. I, you know, we, we don't have to be political to say that that's a, true, that's a real thing, right? That's a real thing. I don't think we've managed our world well. Um, we've been looking for love through self-centeredness. Hookup culture. I want to get what's good for me. I want to do this because it's good for me. Well, it's the opposite, obviously, of love. It's, 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 self, it's trying to find love through self-centeredness. It's not working. It's not going to work. It's a wilderness. And we could talk about all kinds of examples. But so, see, the prophecy here is for a king that would come. And who is that king? Well, in the book of Matthew... It says this, in those days, is Matthew 3, 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. The voice of Isaiah 40 is John the Baptist, and he came to announce the coming of Jesus. And see, here's the thing. Jesus is the ruling king that came and about whom the prophecy is given. So who is the king? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Number two, what he comes to do. Verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the second that, that her iniquity is pardoned. That her iniquity is pardoned. So what did he come to do? He came to forgive sins. Now it's very interesting what the text says here. Sort of the section of these 11 verses prologue that sort of fit with that little uh, statement of forgiveness of sins. Verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So it says, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. What is it about grass and flowers? They are truly beautiful, 
but they are so perishable. They have a shelf life. They don't last. They're, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They're frail and they're weak. If you don't water them, they will die. And that's one of our big things at our house. It's, it's did we get the plants watered or not? And oh, we've forgotten for a couple of days. We've got to get out there. Now, my wife does most of the watering and it's very nice of her. But sometimes she'll call me and say, can you please go out and water the plants today? They need to be watered. Why? Because they're going to die. If plants, if flowers and grass don't get water, they die. We all know that. Their beauty is really only temporary. Well, this is true of us, right? Beauty is skin deep. For those of us who were very, very, very good looking when we were younger, uh, suddenly the wrinkles come and the weight comes and everything sags and the energy's gone and things start to break down. How are we different from grass? We're not that different from grass, right? Um... So that's one of the implications. We are just like that. We are just like grass. But there's another implication that, that has to do with the context in this particular chapter. See, I believe that it tells us that nations rise up and they look ominous. But they don't last. We look at Russia, we look at China. China's just infested some of our uh, computer systems in the Pentagon with a, with a worm or something like that. And the speculation is that while they invade, China, they invade Taiwan, that the worm won't allow the U.S. to react. This was something I read in the New York Times. Who knows? Everybody gets uptight about these things. But see, they're, they're, it talks about these things in, in Scripture, that nations rise up. Even America could rise up, but they're gone. They're gone after a while. They don't last. They may look large and beautiful, but they come to nothing. It tells us this. A little further on in the chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, and then 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the, and then 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The issue is that the peoples of the world want to rise up and be important. They want glory. This is the desire of every human heart to want glory. They set themselves up and look to be at the top of the heap. And if you look at the first 39 chapters of Isaiah that I've already talked about, it's, that's mostly about judgment. The Assyrians are setting themselves up to be important. If you read the few chapters before this one, the Jews are setting themselves up to be important. The Babylonians are setting themselves up as important. And God won't hear of it. They're like grass in the field. When he blows his breath on them, that's what it says in verse 7. When he blows his breath on them, they wither. And this is why the king needs to, be, needs to come. Because the only glory we're worthy of reflecting is actually his glory. We don't have any glory of our own. Except for what we reflect because we're made in his 
image, to be fish that swim in water. We need his glory to be on top of us because we can't fabricate our own glory. It withers. It withers. And then we get this curious verse, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What word is he talking about? Well, uh, three things here about the word of God, um, and they all really agree with each other. It, it, the first option could be that it means the entire Bible, the Bible that we have. Of course, Isaiah didn't have the Bible. He had uh, probably the Pentateuch is probably what he, he had. Um, so some would say that this means the Bible, and many people use this phrase at their scripture reading um, and, you know, say the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, that's a very worthy application of it. The entire Bible would be the Word of God. And if we believe what we've been doing here this year, it is God's story of freedom. The entire Bible sort of points to that. So it is his story of freedom. Peter tells us, uh, gives us a little more specific thing when he quotes from Isaiah 40 in 1 Peter 1.24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's being a little bit more specific, saying it's the, it's the gospel. But of course, we could say that the entire Bible is the gospel. It all points to the gospel. But most likely, I think what the Word of God refers to is going back to, chapter, to, to the beginning of, of uh, verse 2. It's going back to verse 2, and the Word that is given there, that her iniquity is pardoned. Well, that doesn't disagree with anything I've just said in the other two. That her iniquity is pardoned. Um, and then look at the last part of that, the last that, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double for all her sins. So what is it that he comes to do? He comes to give us double for all of our sins. What in the world does that mean? Well, he doesn't just come to wipe the slate clean. He doesn't just come to forgive sins. It's way more than that. We've talked about it lots of times. There's a double blessing that is received. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange that happens, we cannot lose sight of this. We actually become the righteousness of God. For those who call on the name of Jesus... We not only get forgiveness for our sins, he takes our sin, but we get his righteousness. And he does this at the cross. What? That seems to contradict everything that we're talking about in this passage. The king comes with, what does it say in verse 11? I'll find it. In verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. The cross? When the soldiers showed up at the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter thought, game on. 
game on. Pulled out the sword. It's time. Jesus will assert his power. It is time. He understood, I'm sure, what it said in chapter, in Isaiah 40, chapter, uh, verse 12, or verse 11, or verse 10, whatever I just read. I think he understood that. He comes with might. It's time, Lord Jesus, let's do it. And he takes the sword out and he whacks off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And he gets rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus puts the ear back on. He heals that ear. And it's as if Jesus is saying this, Peter, don't you think I can call down legions of angels to wipe everybody out? I can do that, but that's not what strength means. I make myself weak. Do you know how strong, how much strength it takes to be weak? Do you know how much strength it takes to turn the other cheek? Do you know how much strength it takes to love even when abuse has been hurled? Do you know how much strength it takes to follow Jesus in difficult times and climates? And Jesus says, my strength is actually displayed in weakness. The worst punishment that could ever meet anyone at that time. The cross. The cross. So yes, the king comes in power. He comes in power, but he comes in weakness. Just like in Revelation, when we were looking at the lamb, he said, the lion of Judah is on the throne. And when he turned around, he saw a lamb on the throne. It uses both of those terms, the lion who is strong, but the lamb who is weak and comes for the sins of his people. See, that's love, that's forgiveness, that's righteousness. And he gives all of that to us. He gives that to us. So number three, what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? So I want you to see something here that's astounding. I think if we see it, if we, if we can uh, absorb it, we can see it'll, it'll change the way we think and the way we live. I think it'll change the way we think and the way we live. Verse, verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So he comes with his reward and he comes with his recompense. So we get a double blessing, but this says that he gets a reward. He gets a recompense. So the dictionary definition is of recompense to award compensation to. Um, what compensation could Jesus get for going through such agony? And it tells us in verse 11, I don't know of a more tender verse in the entire Bible. It, in fact, when we lost our baby girl in 1986 in the womb, my dad walked in and handed me his business card and he had this note, this, this verse written on the back of it. 
And I, I, I carry, I've carried that card ever since in my wallet. I plastificated it, and it's still in my wallet. And here's the verse, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What is his recompense? We are. We are. Does that seem unbelievable to you? He gathers us in his arms. He carries us in his bosom. He gently leads us. What, what is your view of God? Is it that if you mess up, he's going to get you? You better not do too many bad things because then you're going to have to, you're going to, have to reckon with him. Or when you do something wrong, you can't ask for forgiveness because you've already asked for it five times. And so you got to wait until you feel a little bit better about yourself because surely God doesn't forgive. See, those are all erroneous ways of looking at this God that we have in Isaiah 40. He's not the harsh taskmaster that, that, is, that just is out to get us when we don't straighten up and fly right, there's, I want to give you some news. Nobody's really straightening up and flying right. All of our motives are mixed. This is saying the opposite. In tender love, he carries us, he guides us, he shepherds us. After 39 chapters of judgment, his mercy wins the day. This is what he longs to do, to show mercy, to show grace. Some people say, well, it can't be that easy, can it? If you take the wrath of God away, then there's no motivation to obey. If you take the punishment away, then you really have no motivation to obey. It can't just be grace, grace. But I want you to think about it this way. The only way you can truly obey is if the wrath of God is off the table. Otherwise, you're only obeying out of fear and not out of love. And that's not obedience. Obedience out of fear is not obedience. If the only reason you obey is because of fear of punishment, then your obedience isn't really obedience because you're using God so he won't punish you. It's all about you. It's not loving God for his goodness. And saying, I love you, God. You've forgiven it. The, the condemnation is off the table. Now there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have no more condemnation. Now, I just want to love you. I want to follow you. I want to do what you want me to do. And that's good news. That's good news. The God of the universe is a God of grace. And he proved it by sending his own son, not to destroy, but to be destroyed so he could shower us with that grace. So if we get that, how will that change us? What is it that we're supposed to do? Verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God, Jesus. We cry it from the mountaintops. 
We're to talk about it with our neighbors and our friends and our families and our children. There's no better news. Jesus has gone before us and has purchased our forgiveness and given us his righteousness. Jesus has shown us his mercy. The chains are broken. The blind see. The lame walk. The year of the Lord's favor is upon us. We shout it. Daniel McLeod is a young man that leads a ministry. He's probably in his 20s now. He leads a ministry in the Nashville, Nashville area called Jesus Mission. And when he was in high school, God put a burden on his heart for sharing Jesus with his fellow students. I subscribe to this uh, Think Q, it's called, and it's about being Christians in a secular world. And and uh, Daniel was being interviewed. And so I just transcribed what he's, some of what he said. Listen to his own testimony. This started for me when I was in high school. I was 17 years old and I got lit on fire for Jesus. And I was just burning for my school to know Jesus. I remember I was trying to be a witness, but I was so stuck in peer pressure at the same time. And I came home to my dad one day and I said, Dad, I'm trying to be a witness. I'm trying to share about Jesus and I want everyone in my school to know this love that I've encountered. And my dad looked at me so clearly and he said, Son, you need to stop falling into peer pressure and you need to become the peer pressure. From that point on, everything shifted. From then I began to realize I had a paradigm shift that when I walk into school, the Holy Spirit is walking into school. And when I speak, he speaks. When I stand, he stands. And I began to really believe that it's God's grace on their life that I am, that I am walking into school. It is God's grace to them that I am there. And we began to start having Bible studies and drawing people to come. And then the next thing you know, out of that Bible study, a collaborative coalition of leaders in our country ended up hosting an event where over 1,600 high school students came for worship and prayer, where students got healed, saved, delivered, and we began to see God move in our country. It was that moment that the Holy Spirit sparked something in my life that made me realize I was made for this. Brothers and sisters, you were made for this. This is like being a fish that gets thrown back into the water. This is what you were made for. It's really good news and it has power. Did you think of that when you walk in with secular people that I am the grace of the Holy Spirit on their lives today? See, it's the gospel that changes our lives. It changes everything and it's the gospel in our world that will change everything. Do you believe that today, brothers and sisters? Let's pray.